Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. Hey, it's Morgan Lee, and it is post-election day. You are listening to Quick to Listen, a Christianity Today podcast, and I am joined by my co-host, Mark Galley. Good to be here, even though both of us have had very little sleep. Mark, what is very little sleep for you, though? Well, I was up until about 3 in the morning, and then I got up at 7 to get here and start figuring out how we're going to respond to all the election results. Okay, I think we had pretty similar hours then. How you so, doing? Okay, how about you? Did you get your daily run in today, preparing for your marathon? No daily run, everyone. Yesterday, I did wake up at 5 a.m. Yeah, 5 a.m. to go on a run. But I actually just had, I just did an intervention on myself to make sure I stayed awake. I had coffee. Oh, and that isn't usual for you? No. Oh, yeah. You'll have to learn to enjoy the no, benefits of coffee. No. Only in rare occasions. Okay. Like a historic election. <laughs> hey, Mark, who do we have on the show this week? This week, uh, we're very happy to have Ed Stetzer on the show. Ed uh, holds the Billy Graham Distinguished Chair for Church, Mission, and Evangelism at Wheaton College. He also blogs for Christianity Today in a blog called The Exchange. He has a very good piece up this week on uh, the election and its results. And formerly, Ed was the head of Lifeway Research, and that's one of the main reasons we're calling him today to talk with him, because he has studied evangelicals a lot. He's, he's one of these irritating people that just knows a lot of stuff, and it's really interesting to talk to him. Just want to take a moment to remind everyone that Quick to Listen, the podcast that you are listening to, is made possible by all the subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. And Christianity Today magazine comes out 10 times a year. We are currently working on our January-February issue. Is that correct, Mark? That is correct. The December issue will be hitting households pretty soon. It's really interesting. We did some stuff on the opioid crisis. And so if you want to see how the church isn't getting involved with those issues, you still have time to subscribe and get that sent to your household. And we have a deal here where you can get this magazine for $10. So in order to do that, just go to orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. And in addition to getting it, the magazine, you will also be able to read all of our archives, which I will say I was on the archives pretty late last night looking up stuff that we've done previously on the election. And it's amazing just how much information that parades around is new is actually in our archives from five or six years ago in this case. But in many other places, whenever I would tell my news editor there was something new under the sun, and he would be like, actually, 15 years ago, we wrote about this. Exactly. So see for yourself yeah. and subscribe to CT. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. So this week, we're going to be talking about the election. We have, as of next year, we will have a new president. And as of this week, we know who that president is going to be, Donald Trump. So the big story that we want to talk about this week on Quick to Listen is the fact that white evangelical voters showed up to support Donald Trump at their highest margin since 2004. And so even though there were reservations that were expressed by many evangelical and also Republican leaders, white born-again slash evangelical Christians cast their ballots for Trump 
at an 81% to 16% margin over Hillary Clinton. And that's according to the exit polls that came out last night. Evangelicals of color who represent two in five evangelicals, but most of the time you can't get their data when you're looking at exit polls. They largely preferred Clinton leading up to the election. Um, But again, that's from data. That's from polling that was done before the actual election itself. And so this week, we're really interested in looking at never Trump evangelicals, of which there were many, and also evangelicals who came at highly in favor of Trump and kind of what's next for this relationship with them and where do we where do we go from here, especially in light of all these different facts. So, Mark, I want to head into our gut check right now. And as you know, our gut check is the time where we succinctly give kind of the visceral feelings that we had about whatever current event we're doing that week. And so in this case, I'm wondering if you can just talk to me about how you felt when you saw the exit polls reporting evangelical votes. I was frankly surprised. I had gotten the distinct impression, obviously I'm a not well-informed person, that the evangelical vote was more ambiguous or nuanced than I had than I imagined it would be. And when I heard that it was four out of five white evangelicals cast their vote for Trump, I was frankly just surprised. You, I'm going to, I would echo also your surprise. We have run some pieces on Christianity Today that had kind of looked at white evangelical vote in June and then in the later summer months. And from what I saw, it seemed like it was declining, not substantively, but that it was, it was not going to be as high as it was. And so when I did some reporting last night and we were looking at the exit polls in 2008 and 2012, and I saw that McCain and Romney received less of the evangelical vote than what Donald Trump got. I I was, yeah, I was actually really shocked by that because I guess I had seen such public statements by evangelicals really repudiating Trump in a way I'd never seen that happen with McCain or Romney. Ed, what did you think? You know, I mean, I I think we'd all have to be surprised. I think everyone was surprised. I I guess I've kind of hedged it a couple of times coming into the election because I tweeted a few days ago that I I think Trump was um, underperforming in the polls because of what we call in research the shy voter. In other words, uh, someone doesn't want to say they're voting for Donald Trump. And, and, I, and, I, and I think that that was, uh, I mean, I think even what we've said here is, is that, you know, most evangelical leaders that I know are not enthusiastic about Donald Trump. The World Magazine uh, Insider Survey that several of us were on, I mean, it was pretty anti-Trump. Life Ray Research Survey of Pastors was pretty anti-Trump. But rank and file evangelicals, white evangelicals, no. I mean, I, I, I am not stunned that they rallied behind uh, Donald Trump. And, 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 I'm, I'm, and I'm not stunned that it's at this number. I would say we'd have to be surprised. I mean, this is, this is an overwhelming statement. It's a repudiation of a lot of things. Uh, the system, you know, uh, uh, President Obama, you know, I mean, this, this, this is a stunning moment in American, in American history that, that is uh, cause for a lot of people to be alarmed. But also, this is what it looks like when uh, people are angry and they feel like they have been pushed aside economically in some cases, religiously in other cases, and they rise up. And I think someone on CNN said it's kind of a wave of protest. So we're talking right now, obviously, about the millions of white evangelical voters. But I actually want to talk about the people who claim to represent these voters. In the lead up to this election, there were leaders and personalities who said that they were going to never vote for Donald Trump and were very defiant about that. There were also evangelical leaders. Jerry Falwell is probably the president of Liberty University is probably the biggest well-known leader who really aligned himself with Trump, who were unabashedly enthusiastic about the idea of Donald Trump becoming president. So my question for, for both of you guys is, 
all right, the election happened. Donald Trump was elected president. Now what? Well, I think I think there's some real consequences to words that took place before the election. And I think there are people who could agree to disagree or to disagree vocally, to debate one another. I, I think on both sides, though, you, you have when you have some people you, you calling uh, people who wouldn't vote for Trump a panty waste. And you have other people calling people who would get on Trump's advisory council drinking the Kool-Aid. Are those real quotes? Those are real quotes. I I think that there needs to to be some reconciliation and some repentance. I think uh, brothers and sisters in Christ have disagreed. And I I would just say that I'm, I'm quite disappointed that some people have actually chosen to uh, drive a wedge, that Donald Trump became a wedge in the midst of evangelicals. Now, now what we see is it's not that big of a wedge. It was, I mean, the reality is a lot of evangelical leaders are, have been out of touch with their evangelical constituency, for good or for bad. Now, now again, as one who's spoken in the pages of Christianity Today, and I think it's the most read article on the site right now, expressing concerns about evangelicals switching their view on the character of politicians for the expediency of the political moment, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not here saying it's all good. But I am saying at the end of the day, Christians should speak prophetically to their candidates, but they should also recognize that the body of Christ is going to need to be together after this election. There are some people who have actually driven some pretty significant wedges in the body of Christ in and around this election. And I think ultimately in hindsight, uh, well, not even hindsight, at that moment really was, was a mistake. It's this sort of thing has happened in every election, uh, presidential election in the last few times, but not as deeply and as profoundly with as much uh, vitriol and anger and suspicion of one another. Well, and I'm also curious, you know, I, I'm saying like, now what? But also, who really has the power, right, to reach out to the others? In many ways, Robert Jeffries or Jerry Falwell, they've put themselves in a position to really benefit if Trump became commander in chief, which he will be now. And so to that extent, are they the ones that are going to have to say to the, some of these never Trump evangelicals, like, Yes, we would like to make nice to you. You know, who who really gets to call the shots and kind of determine what this relationship would look like? And doesn't even make sense for a lot of these guys to try to build bridges with someone like Russell Moore. Well, there are, there are already conversations going on. I don't, I don't think the combatants who ultimately divided so many on this issue will be the ones who call a truce and call for sort of a reconciliation. I think ultimately it's godly. Dates, men and women are going to have to say, we're bringing these people together, and I, and I don't know that it, and I don't know that everybody is going to do that. I think ultimately some people have um, kind of drawn a line in the sand. And, I, and I, I, here's what I would say: Donald Trump is the next president of the United States, and uh, and 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 again, that's that's shocking to me, and it's probably shocking to a lot of people listening to this podcast. But but it is it is the reality. Um, you know, the Huffington Post has been uh, putting a little tag at the end of every Donald Trump article. And at the end of that article, they, they say he's a racist and a misogynist and go through a series of things. And every article, they, they made a new policy. Well, yesterday they changed that. They said, you know what? Uh, he's now president. We need to start with a clean slate. Now, now again, I'm going to continue to speak. And I know, I know Christianity Today will, and it has and will. I'm going to speak when there are issues of justice and morality and more that come up in the midst of a President uh, Trump administration. However, I think ultimately we all owe him what we have always done as Americans is to say, he is our president, we're going to pray for him. Those who have kind of burned some bridges in the process need to be those who say, we're gonna pray for him as well. But ultimately that's gonna be, you know, I I hope and pray everyone's gonna uh, do what President Obama did. President Obama today uh, wished success to Donald Trump. I wish success. I wish justice and righteousness. And I, I, I wish and pray, I hope and pray that the evangelicals that elected him will speak into his life about 
refugees and about women and, and about pro-life issues. But ultimately, it would be deeply disappointing if Americans, to the degree they can, united around President Trump and the and evangelicals remained divided because of the uh, overly strong and unnecessary words from, from some people who are more driven by making their point than respecting their brother and their sister in Christ. And so, so again, I'm looking for some evangelical spokespeople, leaders, to speak up and let's uh, let's let's bring this thing together. And there there are conversations going on behind the scenes, uh, but they are behind the scenes. So I'll leave it at that. But these need, these meetings need to happen. In one sense, it would surprise me that never Trump evangelicals and the four out of five conservative evangelicals who voted for Trump, why either one would want would even want anything to do with one another. The winners are basically saying, "Yeah, we were right, you were wrong." So either get on board or or go away. And the never Trump are saying, "You've you've betrayed the faith, you Trump people." So I want nothing to do with you. So. I'm assuming the people behind the scenes are more uh, big picture people, big tent evangelicals who th- who somehow think that our common faith in Christ might be more important than our politics. I mean, I'm just kind of of the view that um, the body of Christ is more important than the occupant of the White House. And, you know, I, I really appreciate, you know, Mark Dever is a pastor, a friend of mine, he's pastored in D.C. for a long time. Uh, you know, and he always talked about this, about, and, and they've always been so careful. I mean, they're Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And so I, I think ultimately a lot of people were not careful and we're reaping some of the harvest with a divided evangelicalism. And so I, what I would just say is that our, our focus has to be to see the United, you know, as, as a country, we just as, just as, as as I and others prayed for, and uh, you know, united united as as people in the past, you know, President Obama and others uh, were elected, still speaking truth to power when we needed to. I think ultimately, as a special case here, the church needs to be needs to be united, and and that, and, and that breaks my heart that people have made choices to get us there. But it is what it is. And now we need to sort of bring some reconciliation moving forward. So you talked earlier about Trump becoming a wedge among evangelicals. Is it also possible, though, that the presence of him in 2016 illuminated real differences among that are that are present in the movement and that it's not fair just for the movement to to look at it, realize that there are key issues and ways of understanding politics and power that aren't necessarily compatible with each other and to just kindly part ways and well, I don't. The problem is, I don't think it's a part ways because the evangelical leadership is out of touch with the evangelical rank and file. Um, and, and I would, I would put, you know, I put myself in that in a sense because, you know, I'm, I'm very pro refugee, but evangelical rank and file are not. Now, ironically, their churches and their pastors are. So there's, I spoke last week at the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion, and I, I sort of explained this kind of three tiered level thing: evangel- white evangelical rank and file. Now, now, by the way, you know, pollsters use evangelical very. And you've made a point of saying white evangelical, but when you say evangelical, pollsters know you mean white evangelical, but it's important to say that. But when we looked at the LifeRay research data using the uh, National Association of Evangelicals belief scale, um, you actually find that, you know, it's pretty diverse. People of color who are evangelicals are are not supporting Donald Trump. As a matter of fact, only the minority. There was a plurality, but no majority supported uh, Donald Trump. But rank and file white evangelicals are at a different place than their leaders. And and in a sense, and again, what are what are leaders? What are leaders if they're out of touch with the rank and file? Now, part of that's being prophetic. I, I think ultimately, part of my job, and I do in the pages of Christianity Today, is to hold up the importance of churches ministering to and advocating for refugees. Well, I mean, that's not where the rank and file evangelicals are on on this issue, and I and I and I get that. Um, so there's times to be prophetic, but at the same time, you have to recognize that we do come from a constituency. 
Um, that constituency is overwhelmingly for Trump. And, and and for some, you know, so right now everyone's tweeting, you know, you know, I don't know what evangelical means anymore. Here's the deal. Change the name. Okay, let's call it purple. And it's still going to be identified by pollsters as a oh, strong voting block. And it's still going to have leaders of organizations or, you know, and so, so you can rename it. But the issue is not renaming. It's there is a group of people that have similar beliefs. And as such, if you despise those people so much, well, number one, you might not be the best leader for them. But also, too, part of it is, is the job is to be prophetic. So I would say to rank and file evangelicals who disagree with me on refugees, please consider the facts, for example, on refugee resettlement uh, and its its safety, its long track record, the opportunity to show and share the love of Jesus. But I also get that that that's not where the rank and file the rank and file have shown where they are, and they're not with with me on that issue. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Do you see at all a chance that evangelicals, I, I guess I'm going to call them like the 81 percent here, would somehow throw out their leaders who do not share these opinions with them? Or are they just content to continue to ignore them? I think you will see some pressure on some leaders. And, I, you know, I don't know where that will go, but I do think that they're I mean, you can you can just see the shouting on Twitter. Um, so but who who knows? I mean, you know, ultimately, the system can be a little different depending kind of on, on uh, in each, you know, in each network or denomination. Is it, a, is it an electoral process? Is it something that takes place through a judicatory process or other bishops? So I guess it depends on where. And, and, I don't, and I don't know, but here's what I would say. I would say ultimately um, evangelical leaders need to ask. Now, I obviously have not been, you know, I, I've written intentionally very critical articles about Secretary Clinton, who I think is, uh, is just an ethical train wreck and, and, and has a long history of beliefs, but basically relaunched her campaign at Planned Parenthood and couldn't mention freedom of religion when she's at Four Freedoms Park, which is where she launched her campaign at FDR's Four Freedoms Park, one of which was freedom of religion. And so, I, and I've spoken to that and, 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 and spoken to some of the ethical issues of Trump. I think that's what evangelical leaders need to do. And then we vote. I voted. We voted. We all voted on this interview. But, but ultimately, the, I think the question I think a lot of people need to ask is, uh, did some of the evangelical leaders serve their constituency well by becoming so partisan and defining their ministry uh, for Trump or against Trump? I would think there's two things that are going to happen in the relationship between leaders and the evangelicals on the street. One is many will vote with their feet. That is to say, they will have listened to what 
he, uh, the never Trump evangelical leaders have said and will say, well, these people aren't trustworthy. Obviously, they were suggesting we do one thing and we felt like we should do another. I'm going to find a leader who's going to support me and encourage me in what the thing I want to do. So there's that. The other, though, from the, ev- the evangelical leader, I, th- I think you're exactly right, Ed. I think we need to kind of reevaluate our leadership. If our leadership was so effective... <laughs> that CT had a number of articles that basically asked people to question not just Clinton's ethics, but also Trump's ethical behavior, ethical stands, and it seemed to make no difference whatsoever to the larger evangelical audience. We might want to think about, okay, how do we go about persuading people about something we have deep convictions about? How do we do that better so that uh, there's more resonance with what we're saying, so that we can actually lead and have followers instead of just shouting out into the wind and having it go nowhere? Yeah, and I would say the critique uh, of many rank-and-file evangelicals of, of, for example, Christianity Today, which, which I'm glad to be connected to and, 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 and part of, the, the magazine through Andy Crouch's article spoke strongly speak to Trump. And in there, you know, mentioned Clinton and others. But I, but I think uh, what, what I hear leaving this election is, is that a lot of rank-and-file evangelicals say, you know, you kind of spoke to Trump, but you didn't speak up much on Clinton. And, and I think that's, a, that's an important critique we hear. Now, I think the, the answer is, is that Trump's kind of our creation. And this is, this is sort of my hope, right? So, so, I mean, evangelicals made Trump through the primaries. And now I'm hoping they'll remake him as president. Because, because the person who run, ran for president um, with, with all the, the, the vitriol and character problems and all, I, I'm hoping that the evangelicals who who weathered a huge amount of criticism, again, called Kool-Aid drinkers for advising Trump. Well, I hope that now those that have his ear, and I've talked to some of them, and they really are having conversations, that they would then speak to a different kind uh, of Trump but, but, and help him be, and this is what all, I mean, this, this is what President Obama is wishing, that we, the best success and good governance. And so how do we not wish for that and, and, and look to the, you know, pray for the welfare of the city and then not wish for Donald Trump and hopefully pray that evangelicals who have his ear can speak into this. But I wrote a very critical article of Hillary Clinton in Christianity Today, Why Evangelicals Dislike, Despise, I forget the exact title, Hillary Clinton. And, uh, and it got good, good readership. You know, it was a, from an interview I did with CNN um, that they ran. But then when I wrote a criticism of Trump, it's, it's still now the most read article on Christianity Today. And, and and maybe that's because it's counterintuitive that evangelicals are speaking. I mean, of course, that's why it is. But I still think that in hindsight, maybe some of these evangelical leaders should have also spoken up more on issues of life uh, and character and what what does it mean for for uh, I mean religious institutions. Here's here's the I mean Donald Trump's going to be president, and I can tell you that though shocking, uh, a lot of Christian school administrators and presidents are thankful that they probably are now maybe less likely to lose their accreditation and, their, and for their students to be able to participate with the taxes they pay to go to college as they have for, for decades. So, 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 so again, I think maybe some of those things might have been sort of better communicated. Uh, there, are real, there, there were real implications uh, with uh, Hillary Clinton. And, and to be perfectly honest, I wrote, um, you know, I wrote the article, here's Hillary Clinton has won. So, <laughs> what what does that mean? I and I mean, did, it will remain I, unpublished, I guess. I, I, I'm assuming. I mean, so maybe I should publish it and just say. But I'm assuming we all wrote. We all had, you know, two versions. I think Donald Trump had a, a concession speech and a victory speech. I just think, in hindsight, I think evangelical leaders would have had more credibility with evangelical rank and file if they spoke to how strongly they feel about issues of life and religious liberty and character 
that was, you know, this very strongly directed at, at Secretary Clinton. Ed, where do you see room for evangelicals of color in this movement, specifically for them that feel a, a deep sense of alienation and isolation from how white evangelicals voted at the polls? Yeah, well, first, they, they I, I think it's appropriate. That's an appropriate reaction for persons of color, because uh, as of yet, President-elect Trump has done has done very little to build bridges. I, I don't I hope again and I pray and I'll actually encourage some of the people who have his ear to speak into some of these issues. And I, and I hope that there will be an openness and a hearing to that. Now, but, but here's the deal, I can't. I mean, I can't, and you can't. We can't decide what he's gonna do. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna highlight more persons of color at the exchange. Uh, I'm gonna highlight more women leaders and writers and thinkers at the exchange. So I'm not responsible for the 81% of white evangelicals. I am a white evangelical. I'm not responsible for what they have done. But nevertheless, I'm part of this group. And, and by the way, I'm not ashamed of being an evangelical. Uh, I may differ with my evangelical sisters and brothers, but this running down of evangelicalism is, is again, it might, might, might get you a good publishing moment, but it doesn't really help long term. I, I think for those of us who are um, white evangelicals, particularly those of us who are uncomfortable with Trump, I think this is an opportunity for us to reach out to elevate uh, persons of color, women, um, refugees, mar general marginalized groups. I'm hardly a marginalized group, but if I were in a marginalized group, I would really be concerned. So, so I can't fix what Donald Trump will do, but I can do what I can do and maybe encourage our listeners to do the same. Start conversations, give your platform to persons of color to speak into this situation to, and speak up in issues. You know, again, um, I, I would say I would be troubled for any, um, evangelical leader who was enthusiastically supporting Donald Trump, uh, who didn't speak up uh, after that Access Hollywood tape. Being supportive and hopeful doesn't mean that you won't speak prophetically. Um, if, if Donald Trump governs like he ran as a candidate, then you'll find a whole lot of us speaking up and speaking out. And I think that's appropriate. And I think people of color are watching. W or will we as white evangelicals uh, hold Donald Trump to the standard that we said we were going to. We flipped on, on whether character matters. You know, a stunning poll uh, shows that, you know, evangelicals used to think they were the highest group thinking character was important for public officials. Now they're the lowest. Okay, uh, repent of that. It is essential. Do you think that there's a tension, though, between trying to say to evangelicals of color, like, yes, the umbrella is big enough for you. This is for people who were kind of like evangelicals of the never Trump variety. And then turn around and say, also, all of you who were kind of enthusiastic about Trump, there's also room for you there. And that it's possible to kind of to, to be able to be stretched both ways, considering that for evangelicals of color, they may feel like this is very uncomfortable for me to be in the room with people who do not take my right seriously. The assumption is that um, people who voted for Trump didn't take the right seriously. And, and, I, and I don't think most people I know, you know, did so because they're racists or and I'm adding to what you said. I'm not saying you said that, but they didn't vote in that because they're racists or misogynists. I mean, they voted. I mean, I've talked to hundreds of people who voted because they couldn't vote for Hillary Clinton in good conscience. So, but I'm, I don't think the umbrella, back to using your language, I'm not asking anybody to become an umbrella of Donald Trump in my church. I'm asking us to be, and you know, I'm the interim pastor at Moody Church. We have 70 nations there in a multicultural church. And I can assure you, I'm not going to get up Sunday and say, hey, let's all unite around to the banner of Donald Trump. Here's what I'm going to say. The body of Christ remains united, and one candidate or the other is not going to divide us. And as Christians, we're going to pray for our president. I prayed for President Obama, and I prayed for President Bush and others. 
And so, so the, the umbrella here is the umbrella of a higher name, a name that's above every name. It's not the name Trump, it's the name Jesus. So I'm still going to expect people to differ, but I would say that I am a citizen of the kingdom of God, and people who voted for Clinton are in that kingdom, and who voted for Evan McMullen are in that kingdom, and voted for Gary Johnson and Donald Trump. That's the name under which I want us to rally. And secondarily, I want us to be Americans, and part of what we do as Americans is we give our new president a chance to do something different and be something different than he was. Now, here's where evangelicals are unique. This is, we made them. You know the old expression, you break it, you buy it, okay? Well, evangelicals broke this, okay? They, they, they broke the records, and so now it's time to speak truth to Trump, and in speaking truth to Trump, to seek him to be a better president than he's been as a person. The sense that Christian unity cannot have tremendous tensions within it. That's, that's kind of a, a false uh, assumption about what Christian unity is. The fact of the matter is we, ha- we do have deep differences in, uh, e- among evangelical Christianity, and there are times I'm in settings with other evangelical Christians that I am very uncomfortable, and I can imagine, like you're saying, there'll be times when black evangelicals or Hispanic evangelicals would be very uncomfortable in a setting I happen to be very comfortable in. But part of being the body of Christ is not just waiting around for a community that makes us feel good about ourselves, but one that actually, because the unity in Christ is more important than anything else, will inadvertently cause us to feel tension at times. But we still remain in fellowship. We still break bread together. We still pray together. Because the name of Jesus, like you're saying, Ed, is way higher than any political candidate or cause we can imagine. Again, I agree with the concerns. So, so the concerns of the black I, community, you're saying, concerns the African American yeah. community in the case, and now you know, and concerns. But let's, it's not just there; it's marginalized communities, right? It's it's Latinos who are immigrants. You know, I mean, again, I, I I've said publicly that an evang- that an illegal immigrant from Mexico is more likely to be an evangelical pastor than a rapist or a murderer. I'm going to continue to speak true to those situations and recognize that there are some real hurting people. But I can't undo the election, and I definitely don't want the, the body of Christ to be undone. So with those two realities, the body of Christ far more important to me. If Wherever you go to church on Sunday, 40% of people say, he's not my president. I don't think that's helpful for America, but I would still say, all right, that's fine, but we all bow down before King Jesus. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what we're here, and that's what we're focused on today. All right. Thank you, everyone, for chiming in on this great conversation. All our listeners can follow along or contribute to that at facebook.com slash ctpodcast or on Twitter at ctpodcast. So now is the time of the show. We call it Precious Moments, and it's a time when people can share something that is bringing them joy as you detox from the election. Maybe detox isn't the right word. Recover, recuperate. So, Ed, can you tell us what your plans are in order to do well, that? Well, first, let me affirm the word detox was a great word because I think we need some detoxing and so and some healing. You know, you know, for me, um, I'm looking forward to this weekend. I, I, I really believe Ephesians 3.10 says God has chosen the church to make known his manifold wisdom. So I look forward to being there at Moody Church with people from 70 nations and worshiping King Jesus and focusing on him and, and, and ultimately spending the day, the morning, the Lord's Day focused on a kingdom that's bigger than this world and a gospel that that's bigger than any other any other reality that guides us and defines us. We're a gospel people, and I look forward to being with the people of God. I just want to make a note for people who do not know, Moody Church is located in downtown Chicago, in case you're wondering how it attracts all the diversity. I think also it attracts a lot of diversity because it's done a great job reaching out and trying to build a multicultural expression of church. And Ed, you are on the Twitter, correct? I'm on the Twitter, yes. At Ed Stetzer, just my name, at Ed Stetzer. All right, Mark, what's your precious moment? 
no matter who wins, uh, I have to recover from elections because I find the intensity of the election season leading up to election day just exhausting. And so it doesn't matter who wins or loses. I feel like I just need a break from it. And I'm going to get a break. I'm planning to, in at least a week and a half or two, to get away for about a week to do a little writing, play a little golf, and just clear my head uh, in early December so that when January 1 rolls around, I'll be ready to hit the road. By the way, everyone that wants to follow Mark when he's not at CET or when he's not on this podcast can do so by going to the Galley Report. ChristianityToday.com slash the Galley Report, where I uh, make commentary on four or five links uh, every week. So my precious moment is that I am visiting my sister who lives in Beirut, and I will be flying to Lebanon next week. Wow. One right. hot spot, the American elections, to another hot spot, Lebanon. All right. It's not like Beirut is divided or anything between the Christian <laughs> and Muslim section. <laughs> yes. At least we don't have the violence that they have to endure there. Yeah, so. exactly. Actually, so I think I'll be going about a year after there was a bomb that went off in Beirut last year. It's been relatively calm since then. You know, they're neighbors with Syria, which is obviously in the middle of a civil war. But Lebanon, for the most part, has been able to escape a lot of that. And I know some about Lebanon from writing about the Middle East, but I actually don't know that much. Yeah, that'll be great for you. Yeah. I might also go to Jordan, too. So I hope that works okay. out. Okay. So anyway, everyone can ask me about my trip when I come back. And where can we reach you? I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. We are thankful for all of you guys for listening to us on the show. And it's produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. Reminder, you can subscribe to Christianity Today at orderct.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes and SoundCloud. And if you like the show, the best way to do it is to rate and review us on iTunes. And we just got a really nice iTunes review just before coming down here. So thank you for the person who left that. It helps us a lot. And we will see you all next week. <laughs>